0: Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to read up to verse um, 21. And the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. Thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, that again we might appreciate who Christ is and what he hath done to redeem a people unto himself. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Um, Well, as you can tell by my prayer... um, My goal is always that we would appreciate what Christ has done, who he is, and all of the things that he has set before us that we might appreciate the salvation that he hath so carefully wrought in himself. To understand and appreciate what's in here in Genesis chapter 3, and we've already covered the first half of the chapter, but again I would remind us that the Lord, the commentary for this and other sections is to be found in the New Testament. We uh, last week read again from Ephesians chapter 5, and I want to remind us of these verses here because the relationship between Adam and Eve is the relationship between Christ and his church. God is telling that very clearly to us in Ephesians chapter 5. In verse 25, the Lord tells us, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And then down in verse um, 32, he tells us, This is a great mystery but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And so that follows what he had previously said where he says, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We are united with Christ, so we are one with him. For this cause, the fact that we're one with him, shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So he's setting this before us. This is the normative relationship between a man and a woman. When they get married, the man leaves the family and cleaves unto his wife, and they become one flesh. This we see with Christ and his church. He cleaves to his church. He was on the cross. My God, my God, why hath thou forsaken me? He's separated from his father, and he's now been united with his bride, the church. And so... In Scripture, the Lord also helps us to appreciate the order of creation, in so much as He created the man first, and then He created the woman. And He says here, "For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, was in the transgression." So again, we're not left wondering um, what happened here and what was uh, happened with Eve. I mean, she tells the Lord that the serpent deceived her, and we are reminded of that again. Also, in Romans chapter 5, verse 14, we are again told that Adam is a figure of Christ. In other words, he's a type of Christ. So all of these things help inform us as to why things played out the way they did. In Genesis chapter 2, God has given Adam instructions, and he says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. This was after Adam understood that Eve had come the woman had come from him, and that she was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And he calls her woman, meaning of the man. So having these things set before us, that the Lord is telling us that he's speaking about the church in this relationship, and that's the way we should understand it moving forward here. So knowing all of these things here, and having an appreciation of what adam understood keep in mind that adam was not corrupted by sin as we are adam hadn't had the benefit of government schools telling him that he had evolved from a soup you know like we have been taught Um, adam understood that god made everything and that he made animals each kind after each kind its kind and he himself was unique and that he was in the um, image of god as was Eve. Male and female, God created them in the image of God, created he them. Adam knows all these things. God had told them that when he ate of the fruit, that he would surely die. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Adam knew that. He understood the relationship between himself and the woman, and between himself and God. And he had looked. God had had him name all of the animals, and he saw that there was nothing like him. There was nothing like him except for Eve. And he's to cleave to the woman. So his, w- his wife has eaten of the fruit. He knows that she's dead. So, again, we've covered this. What is he going to do? He has a choice. He can either let her die by himself, by herself, in which case he has no uh, suitable helpmeet. He can live with her and watch her die. Or he can choose to join her in death. He understood what God said in Genesis 1.26 when God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Genesis 1.27 says that God made man in his image, in the image of God made he them. In other words, he didn't do in verse 26 what he said he would do in verse 27. Excuse me. He didn't do in 27 what he said he would do in 26. And so Adam understood that there was more to this story than had currently taken place, that God had yet to make man in his image and his likeness. And that was where the Lord is going to take it, and so he understood that, that this was a mystery that would yet be revealed to the rest of us, but he understood it. And so we can appreciate that he chose to die with his wife. He chose to die with Eve, chose to join her in death. And by the way, that's the... Romantic story that we see written time and time again by human authors. Romeo and Juliet is that way. Juliet has taken a sleeping potion feigning death. Romeo thinks she's dead. What does he choose to do? He chooses to die. Juliet wakes up. She sees that uh, romeo is dead what does she choose to do she chooses to die as well so she slays herself so people choosing to join each other in death is not a new idea it comes straight from scripture because that's what adam did he chose to die with um, the woman that the lord had presented to him and so it is with christ this obviously is a mirror what christ did just as she gave to him the fruit and he did eat and therefore died so too did god lay upon um, christ the iniquity of his people the iniquity of the church he hath laid on him the iniquity of us all because we were all dead in trespasses and sin and so for christ to be united with us he would be united with us um, through the cross and through his death um, and so we read in second corinthians 5:21 that god hath made him sin god hath made him sin who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So there's this transference of sin for righteousness that takes place in, through the gospel, but we see it the, um, beginning to play itself out in typology here in Genesis chapter 3. Um, so with that understanding, moving forward, we appreciate um, where man stands before God. Now, in Romans chapter 5 that we read last week in 5.12, it says that by one man came sin, and sin came up, and death came upon all men, because all were in Adam when he sinned. And this is a difficult concept to get a hold of, because people might think they're righteous, um, but they're less likely to declare the righteousness of their parents, and Adam in particular, than they are to declare the righteousness of themselves. They might think that they have not sinned, and recall that's where Paul... Uh, Thought he stood initially, he said, as uh, with respect to keeping the law, he was without blame, outwardly. But inwardly, he was a sinner, and God had revealed that to him. So, what it teaches us in Romans five and in Hebrews chapter seven is that we were all in the loins of Adam when he sinned, and therefore we are condemned with Adam. We are guilty with Adam. So, we are guilty. Me in particular, for two reasons: one, I was in the loins of Adam, and two, I have sinned on my own accord. So before Christ came to me, I was dead in trespasses and sin. And Christ took, um, God took my sins and put them on Christ, um, just as uh, Eve's sin was taken by Eve, Adam didn't take it, but Eve gave his, Eve gave her, um, gave the fruit to um, Adam. Now, so here we are in Genesis three, chapter seven. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Adam knows that he's dead. He knows that he's taken of the fruit. He's disobeyed God. He knows that he is naked. And nakedness is indicative of the shame we feel associated with sin. And so he covers himself, as does Eve, with the righteousness of man, the works of man. And what's interesting is you get to verse 10, when the Lord has said, where are you and what were you doing? I hid myself because I was naked. So he has clothed himself, and yet he knows that he is still naked. So when God convicts a man of sin, no matter what righteous works they think they may have done, um, they stand naked before God. And so God is going to ask some questions here. And again, these questions are asked for our benefit. He certainly knows where Adam is. He knows what he has done. He knows what Eve has done. He knows why she has done it. Scripture tells us that all things are naked and open, unto the eyes with whom we have to do. So God is answering, asking these questions for our uh, benefit and for the benefit of Adam and Eve's. God always drills down to somebody's heart to find out where they are in terms of bringing it up to their own personal knowledge. He knows where they are. So we see played out here the gospel in principle where a man is um, to confess their sins The scripture says that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so Adam's going to confess his sins here. And so I would hope we would appreciate that nobody will stand before an omnipotent and omniscient God and lie to them and blame somebody else for their sin. And that's typically what this is taught is Adam blames Eve and then Eve blames uh, the serpent. But that's not what we see here. We see that God asks four questions and he gets four answers to those questions. The first question he asks Adam, he said, where art thou? Adam's gonna answer the question. He said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was a naked and I hid myself. So he um, very honestly answers that question. The next question God asks him is, who told thee thou was naked? And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me. The woman has told him that he is naked. Third question. Hast thou eaten of the fruit, where have I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Third answer, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. So I want us to appreciate that Adam here, who is a figure of Christ who is to come, is not lying about what took place. He's being very open, and he's being very honest with it, and we want to appreciate that when he took from Eve, he did so out of love. Now, last question he asks, The Lord said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? She answers honestly, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. So each of these individuals answers openly and honestly, and so should everybody when they face God. If you read the description of Christ in uh, the book of Revelation, it says that his eyes are as burning fires. No one is going to stand before the Lord and lie to him about what things that they have done. So we can appreciate that the Lord works through um, this methodology to um Bring them to a place of confession. Uh, We read in uh, Romans chapter two that it is the goodness of God that leadeth us to repentance. And so, when the Lord smites our heart, it is out of out of His goodness that He does it. And then that we would know that we're in need of a Savior and will need to be clothed um, by Christ Himself. So as we continue here, we look at in verses 14 through 19. We see that the Lord judges. He judges Satan then he judges the woman, and then he judges Adam. And Satan is judged by virtue of his deception of Eve. Now, recall that he's the more subtle than any beast of the field, and he's clever, but he's not that clever, because through his deception and what he has caused Eve to do, he has essentially sealed his own doom. In Romans 8.28, the Lord says that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So what has taken place here is the advancement of the gospel, and it's the advancement of what God plan for man is. It is God's plan to have man in his image and his likeness. Not just in his image, but in his image and his likeness. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, the Lord says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. New creature. Not like Adam, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Peter 1, 4 talks about that Christians, those who have been indwelled by Christ, are partakers of the divine nature. So before the Lord comes unto a person, they are dead in trespasses and sin, but they are not uh, the dwelling place of the Holy Ghost. God does not live in them. And we have covered in the past the number of verses that teach us this thing. So do not think to yourself that with salvation you will be like Adam. You will be better than Adam. It's not like Humpty Dumpty who's knocked off the wall and God comes, picks him up, tapes him up, puts him back on the wall. No, he takes them and he puts them from the bottom shelf or the middle shelf that he fell from, and he's put on the top shelf with a new body, and he's a a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away, all things are become new. So the Lord, following a principle whereby he takes the wise in their own craftiness, he does the same thing with Satan. It's because of Man, sin entered in, Satan deceived the woman, and then sin came upon everybody through the man. Because he has done this thing, it is through man that reconciliation to God must be made. If man's the one who's offended God, then man must uh, be the one to make things right. And so we see in Genesis 3.15 here a promise that there will be enmity between the woman and the man, excuse me, the Satan and the woman, and the seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent shall bruise the heel of the um, seed of the woman. Now, what makes this interesting here is that this promise comes from God, who is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So that helps us again appreciate that God, who was slain from the foundation of the world, the lamb being slain from the foundation of the world, set up this whole plan before anything took place. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, it speaks about a people chosen from the beginning to salvation. Ephesians 1.4 says, We're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And therefore, we can appreciate that the fall of man was all part of God's plan to make man in his image and his likeness. So it was all set up before man was even made on day six. Now, In Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, we see that God puts enmity between Satan and the woman, and the woman represents the church. And last week we talked about how there was war between Satan and the Christians. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the God of this world. And he works in the children of disobedience, persecuting Christians from this day Um, forward up until now. And so it's simply a question of how much persecution Christians suffer, but the world has always been at enmity with the Christians. The world hates Christians. The Lord tells us that very clearly. He says the world hates me, Christ, because it hates God, hates the one who sent me. In this country, we've suffered little or no persecution as Christians, and we had one shot fired across the bow, if you will, during the COVID lockdowns when the churches were shut down. And then when they opened them up, Um, because they'd had casinos and liquor stores open once they opened up the churches they said well you know what we'll let you worship but you can only have a certain percentage occupancy and you got to sit a certain distance apart and we don't want you singing in church and so we uh, went through that process and so here we are hidden in the back here uh, worshiping according to the way God would have us to worship without suffering persecution which I appreciate now again another principle here it says that god has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty satan is typified in scripture as a strong man and who is it that's going to destroy him it's going to be through a woman whom the scripture says is the weaker vessel the one who was deceived it is through her that satan will be destroyed and so we read in uh, verse 15 second half it says her seed not the seed of a man. Interesting. It says, her seed shall bruise Satan's head, which will be a fatal wound, and Satan shall bruise his heel, which would be non-fatal. So when you read that, you can pull from it that a woman shall conceive a male without the benefit of a male seed. The seed of the woman shall bruise his head. So in other words, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That's what it says clearly in Isaiah 7, 14. But right here in Genesis chapter 3 is the promise of the virgin birth, that God himself will um, uh, come upon a woman, and uh, through the Holy Ghost and through her seed shall Christ come, he who is the God-man who will reconcile us to God. Now in verse 16, we begin to read about the curse, I'm not going to call it curse, excuse me, judgment Upon the woman, and from here we can see so many things that happens in this world with respect to the relationship between men and women and the relationship between women and their children. He says he will greatly multiply her sorrow and will greatly multiply her conception. And so we can appreciate with respect to the sorrow associated with conception all of the physiological problems associated with childbirth. You don't necessarily have to be pregnant to know the um, physiological changes that women undergo associated with their cycle from age 12 to 55 or thereabouts that make life difficult for them. And it comes right here from Genesis. God says that that is what he is going to do. We can also appreciate that various problems are associated with pregnancy that seem unique to women and not um, other Other's not a good word. And not in the animal kingdom. Animals seem to be quite robust when they're pregnant and the delivery of their offspring. They go out into the field by themselves. They uh, give birth and they all get back up and walk back in. And not so with humans. There are often uh, difficulties associated with pregnancy and um, sometimes death, and we see that in the scripture and we see that in the world. I mean, when my daughter was pregnant, I was very concerned because that's a reality. Sometimes women die in childbirth and extraordinary measures have to be taken to get them through that process. And again, that seems to be unique to humans. Now, God says he's going to multiply her conception, and that's going to be necessary. You don't need to go very far to figure this out in Genesis chapter 4. Cain kills his brother Abel. And so, because of murder and mayhem and wars, all you know, everything's associated with sin and uh, natural death taking place, that the woman is going to have to conceive greatly to keep the world populated and that they might go out and um, subdue things as God has told them uh, to do. Now, it says, In sorrow shall they bring forth children. And again, this is a reality associated with women in particular because through the birthing process and uh, when women come into contact with other human beings and hug them their body generates a hormone called oxytocin sometimes it's called the love hormone and so women bond naturally more with their children than do men women bond naturally more with their husbands than do men and so when a man and a woman come together that that very process the woman is bonding to the male because her body is generating oxytocin and so that's going to create relationship problems between the husband and the wife. And my experience has been over the years that when I'm having a disagreement with my wife, it's often rooted in that issue that I'm not giving her the love and attention that she desires and is very worthy of. But that's the reality of it because what follows here with respect to Adam is I've got my head in the dirt, I'm digging, I'm working, I'm doing things to provide for the family, and therefore she thinks I'm neglecting her when I'm not, but that's the manifestation of a man's love for a woman is through providence, whereas the woman is more concerned about um, touchy and feely things, if I can use that language. Um, so. The woman's preoccupation is generally for her husband and her children relationship-wise versus the husband's preoccupation is generally with providing for the family. Now, the next portion here is the Lord says, Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. So we can appreciate where this comes from because the woman sinned, when she was apart from her husband. A lot of people want to put Adam standing next to Eve and he was negligent. She reached out, she took, and he didn't tell her not to, but um, the scripture doesn't say that. I think we can appreciate that he was not there and she sinned when apart from her husband and in her sin, she sought independence from God. And so, therefore, God places the woman under man's authority because man is under the authority of Christ. So he's putting things in a... In order here, so that the woman will be less inclined towards independence and get and uh, be further deceived and sin. In first Corinthians eleven, chapter three, the Lord lays it out very clearly for us in terms of the order that He has established. He said, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So God's ordained order is woman, man, Christ God and that's the way that we see things certainly in the scripture and that's the way things are supposed to work in this world but there's trouble associated with that ordained order it says her desire shall be for her husband and he shall rule over thee so what does it mean for her desire for her husband well that word appears only two other places in scripture one of which is in the song of Solomon where clearly it's a relationship of love a desire rooted in love The other place it appears is in verse seven of Genesis chapter four, when the Lord is talking to Cain and said that, says that sin desires to have Cain. So it's not only a a love for the husband, but a desire to um, rule over him. And we see that take place in women. Some, they try to rule the house and there causes all sorts of troubles in the household. But this this issue in women causes conflict. (laughs) She loves her husband, but yet she wants to direct his steps. And yet she's subject to him, and she's told to submit to him and told to reverence him. And so this is a challenge for all women to um, work through their hearts in terms of her relationship with her husband, in terms of, uh, I don't like to use the word be obedient to him, but simply to understand that God's ordained authority for the family is for everyone's good. In every culture throughout history, that is the order that we see. We see the man over the house, and what's grievous is that in some cultures, women are treated virtually as slaves. I'm thinking of the Middle Eastern countries, but you see that in some, the, um, in some of the wilds of Africa and less developed places where women are treated virtually as slaves. Even in Western cultures, women are often subject to odious husbands, which is a grief to their heart and to everyone, associated with them. It is only in a Christian relationship where the woman has something close to equality because in God's eye, eye, male and female, there is no difference. Black, white, red, yellow, bond-free, rich, poor. God is not a respecter of person and in God's eyes, they are the same. Genesis chapter one, verse 27, male and female created he them in the image of God created he them. Man is in the image of God and so is our women are in the image of God. So before God's eyes, all are equal. However, while sin yet remains in this world, this is the ordained order from God. God, Christ, man, and wife. Now when you're out walking around and you see those cute little t-shirts that you see women wearing where it says girls rule or women rule i said you should think of that as simply rebellion because that is contrary to the order that god has set up in his scripture and it's actually when it bears itself out it's a sign of god's judgment and isaiah chapter 3 verse 12 he says that when he's removing his hand from israel he says i will make uh, children and women your rulers so when you see women ruling you'll know that God's judgment is upon a nation. And we see that more and more in this country every day. So with this ordained order, men have to appreciate that God would have them step up to the plate and lead the families. If you don't do that, then the women will. And you see that in churches all over this country where men have failed to lead and women take their place behind the pulpit or on the board of of, um, eldership or deacons. And that is, again contrary to God's order here now as we continue with the judgments here we should appreciate that what God sets before Adam he curses the earth and not Adam himself and so that is God's mercy because it is very good to keep man busy because if you don't keep man busy he will create mischief and we see that the world over where people get themselves into trouble And if they're kept busy, if they were to keep their nose to the grindstone and work and provide for their families, do those things which are important, then they would be less inclined to engage in sinful activity. So thorns and thistles, it says, shall be brought forth because the whole world has suffered the corruption due man's sin. And we understand that the earth is a temporary living place. God says he's going to burn it up and he'll create a new place. But with respect to thorns and thistles coming forth from your hands, You should appreciate that whatever you set your hand to, as our deacon read, we should do it with our might, but it's not going to come out the way you think it's going to come out. There's always going to be a problem with it. Every job I've ever done, there's some glaring error in it, and that's because of what God has said here. People want to save the world. They want to save the whales. You know, they want to save the dolphins. And God says in Ecclesiastes, he asks the question, can you make straight what God hath made crooked? Can you make straight what God hath made crooked? And the answer is no. He also answers the question, no. You you cannot make straight what God hath made crooked. No one can do that. So nevertheless, we always do our best at whatever task has been set before us. But this world is going to be destroyed, and God has said that it will bring forth thorns and thistles. And so keep that in your mind. Keep that in your heart. That um, that will be the result of your labors. Now, in verse 20, we see that Adam names his wife Eve and why does he call her Eve because she is the mother of all living she's the mother of all living what does it mean to be living it means you're not dead in trespasses and sin so he's appreciating that through her is going to come the Christ through her is going to come the one that's going to redeem us the one in whom life is so Adam understands as I mentioned to you he understands what's going on in Genesis chapter 1 with respect to God going to create people in his image and his likeness He understands what the Lord has said in Genesis 3.15 about the seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent. And so uh, he certainly understands what God is going to do next when he clothes them. And it's after he's clothed by the Lord God that he doesn't think he's naked anymore. In verse 21 we read, And Adam also unto his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothed them. I want us to think about what the Lord did to do that. He's clearly teaching us that the wages of sin is death. Either you're going to die or something is going to die to cover your sin. And so clearly blood was shed to slay this animal. And it's actually in the Hebrew, it's in the singular. So the Lord used one skin to clothe them both. They didn't slay the animal. They had no part in this. They didn't even dress themselves after he slayed it. It says that he clothed them. So we appreciate That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so he's not naked anymore. They're not naked anymore because they have been clothed by Christ, with Christ, who is the Lamb of God. And so this relationship between what we see here and then the Lord identifying himself as the Lamb of God and the, um, the sacrifice for sin, we can appreciate that this is pointing to Christ himself. It is when Christ is on the cross that his coat without seam is parted by lot. They don't tear it up, but they, uh, they cast lots for it, that his coat is going to go on one of those um, soldiers. And that's typifying the robe of righteousness and the garment of salvation that God has placed on all of his children, all of his lack. That's Isaiah 61.10. It talks about getting the robe of righteousness and the... Um, garment of uh, salvation I want to read that I will greatly rejoice in the Lord my soul shall be joyful in my God for he hath clothed me he hath clothed me just as we saw him do in type to Adam and Eve with the garments of salvation he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness so we see this playing itself out in terms of what the Lord is endeavoring to teach us here now what is prudent, prudent to do is to step back a little bit from Scripture here to appreciate that nobody ever suffers more than Christ did. Nobody ever pays a penalty that Christ himself didn't pay. While people might pay the penalty for their sins that they have done individually, Christ paid for all of the sins of his people collectively. So he suffers greater than anybody has ever suffered. Now, I'd mentioned to you that male and female, Men and women are both created in the image of God. In verse 15 here, it says that Christ's heel would be bruised. And so in order for that to happen, God has to condescend and step out of glory and put on the flesh. And in so doing, his sorrows were greatly multiplied. Here it talks about the woman's sorrow being greatly multiplied. Think of her right now as Christ. Christ's sorrows were greatly multiplied when that took phase, uh, place. On Isaiah 53:3, he is identified as a man of sorrows. In Lamentations chapter 1, verse 12, it speaks about how, um, when Christ is on the cross, he says, um, "All ye that pass by and shake their heads, um, see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow." like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. There's no greater sorrow felt by anybody than that which was felt by Christ when he was on the cross. For the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all and then poured out his wrath upon him because of our sins. So we see here that which you might think is exclusively borne by the women is borne by Christ also himself. Also we are identified as his children, God in Christ sorrows greatly over our sin. When we get ourselves into trouble, just as a mother would sorrow for her child that gets themselves into trouble, so too does Christ sorrow over the grief we bring upon ourselves and the, and the uh, issues that we bring upon ourselves due our sin. Um, Having raised children, I can appreciate this, but I spent a great deal of time on my knees praying for my children when I saw that they were getting themselves into trouble. And I needed God's sovereign grace to keep them from digging a hole deeper than they had dug for themselves. Um, So God, Christ, greatly sorrows for the issues and, and troubles and trials and tribulations that we suffer. And we've seen that many places in Scripture, which we've talked about in the past. Now, just Like the woman has a desire for her husband and he shall rule over thee. The same thing can be said of the church. Our desire is for Christ. We greatly love him, but how many people don't tell Christ what he should do? I do all the time. I'm always telling Christ what he should do. When I get on my knees and pray, I say, do this, do that, do the other thing, save this person, fix this problem over here. Um, And so I am guilty of that as well. I love him greatly, but yet I'm always telling him what to do. And the example, of course, is Christ himself when he's in the garden and he says, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And indeed, it should be that way with us because he indeed does rule over us. But what the Lord does do in terms of our submitting ourselves to him is he doesn't rule over us with a rod of iron. He does the rest of the world, but what he does is he works in our hearts to will and to do of his good pleasure. So he works within us to incline our hearts to him, so that we would have a desire to submit ourselves to him and that we would indeed reverence him, just as we read about in Ephesians 5 in terms of what a woman should do for her husband, submit and, and reverence him, so too should the Christian submit and reverence her husband, which is Christ himself. So we, the Lord works in us to will and to do this good pleasure, that we would willfully do these things that we would willfully submit to him and willfully uh, reverence him, having an appreciation for who he is. Now, we see here with respect to what Adam has done or what is said to Adam, so too is true of Christ, that it says here, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. With respect to Christ, did not Christ labor for his meat? He says that. My labor is to do the will of him that sent me. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. It was when Christ was in the garden praying, scripture says that being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And so as Adam sweats in his labors, so too did Christ before he went to the cross. Sweat as it were great drops of blood. So everything in here, as in every else in the scripture, is always teaching about Christ, who he is, and what he did for his people. So our desire as Christians would be to embrace uh, what the Lord has done and to be thankful for it and to accept the um, structure for our family and the responsibilities that we bear for our families and where we fit in his ordained structure. We would um, be thankful that his grace has taken us like a firebrand pulled out of the fire and set us up on high and that the day will come that our deacon read from 1st Corinthians 15 when that which is corruptible our flesh shall put on incorruptibility and we shall all be changed and ever be with him in glory ever fellowshipping with him absent any sin so we have set before us here um, that salvation what God does is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. We see a call. God looks for his people that have sinned. We see a promise that he will bring a seed of the woman. And we see the um, fulfillment, a gift. He's given them coats of skin. And that is a f- framework for all of Scripture, where God calls his people. They have a promise in the gospel, and they have a gift of eternal life in Christ. Amen. Amen.